Yo, what's up, everybody? This is Matt McManus, and this is episode two of McMayhem, the podcast. Once again, I am here with Mr. Sean. Do I, do, should I say your last? I'm just going to say Sean. <laughs> I'm going to say I'm here with Sean, the man, the myth, the legend. He is rocking a Led Zeppelin tie-dye shirt. Looks like it's circa 1998. Heck yeah. Tie, you know what's tie dye was popular when I was in high school back in 1998. Uh, you know, people were kids were wearing Grateful Dead shirts, and I don't even think they knew a Grateful Dead song. It you was know? just hip to have the logo. Yeah, and if you walk up and down Melrose Avenue right now, which isn't far from where we are, there's just kids wearing tie dye, and I like the fact that trends come back around. I like the fact that. You know, 20 years can go by and something is new again. Yeah. You know, I wish that he, as a human, you can do that. Or you could just like hit the reset button. You can, but you just, you still, you're going to have more wrinkles on your face. I think I read somewhere recently that people are going to, like there was somewhere where you can spend like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to freeze your body right before you die. So that if they could figure out a way to like keep you alive eternally at some point, they, that you can be kept alive. I wonder if I would actually do that if I had that money. Probably not. Don't they say, isn't that what Walt Disney did? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Apparently he's frozen somewhere or his head is frozen somewhere. Uh, like Futurama. Mm -hmm. is, there a, is there a fashion trend that uh, you wish could would come back that you would love to rock? You know, it's funny. I saw some really beautiful woman wearing Janko jeans the other day. Ooh, classic. And I definitely had my my share of, of those jeans for many reasons. One, I was a raver. Like, seriously, I was like a huge raver when I was a kid. And to be honest, I still kind of am. I went to Sound Nightclub in Hollywood a couple of weeks ago because my best friend, Ricardo, is like the main DJ there. Well, his name is Anakin. <clears throat> like Anakin Skywalker, but with an M at the end, <laughs> or it pronounced Anakim. He he makes like deep space house music, and it's dope. But anyway, I went there because I'm still a raver. But I was a raver back in 1994, five, six, seven, and eight, mm -hmm. and I rocked these huge jeans that basically were and effectively were a dress on both legs, <laughs> on each leg. They were wide. Uh, I don't wish they would those would come back because I don't think I could pull that off right now. But it's it would be interesting to see the youth rocking those jeans again yeah. again because it would feel like I was back in the past somehow. But it's, now it's somehow validating. It's like it's okay. Yeah, it's still cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I arrived at my own really unique sense of style based on the fact that like. I was a skater. I was a raver. I liked punk rock music. I liked surfing. I somehow like hybridized all of that stuff. All of it. I would rock polo, like Ralph Lauren polo shirts with Janko jeans and like a billabong hat. Now this seems like it's like, you know, nothing crazy now, right? But back in 1998, putting all of those things together really conflicted because the cafeteria in your high school is real. Those tables are set up like countries, you know, at least they were. I'm not in high school now. 
But, you know, I hate saying like these people, the jocks sat at one table, the quote unquote freaks sat at one table of which I was considered one of. Then there were, you know, the smart kids that sat at one table. And then there were the quote unquote special kids that sat at another table. And I also sat at that table, too. I think I was the bridge between the special kids and the quote unquote the freaks. And then my senior year, something magical happened. The most beautiful girl in my high school fell in love with me and I fell in love with her and it kind of like crossed the streams of all of the tables and I think everyone in the school's head kind of exploded because like the Chris Farley of the high school somehow landed the head cheerleader. I don't know how I did it. I mean, I probably could figure it out right now, but back then I had no idea. So you're a big kid? Huge man, I was three hundred pounds. My seat, oh. yeah. I, I, we should. I should. When we put a video up of this, we could put a, a picture of myself back then. You know how when you get your senior picture, the summer before your senior year of high school, like you have to show up, or at least that's that's what I did. I showed up at my high school the summer before my senior year and took my picture. And then the year goes by, and the yearbook comes out at in June, and. You hand your yearbook out and people sign it and vice versa. When you opened up to my page with my picture on it, I was 300 pounds in that picture. But in the time between I took that pic, between taking that picture and when I was handing the yearbook out, I lost 120 pounds. Wow. And it happened very quickly. The impetus behind it was I was friends with some other obese kids. And on New Year's Eve, we all were like, let's lose weight. And so we went to Sal Champy's office. Sal Champy was the high school's football coach. He's famous because he's basically Boomer Esiason's claim to fame, Boomer Esiason, went to my high school. I know I look a lot like him, but he's not my uncle. But I have met him before, and he does pass like his Super Bowl ring out a lot. If you don't know who Boomer Esiason is, he was a Cincinnati Bengal. He's now a host on the NFL, et cetera, et cetera. Really handsome guy. He's from Long Island. He's from East Islip, New York, my hometown. But we walked into Sal Champy's office and said, hey, how, we need to lose weight. And he said, I know. <laughs> because you guys have been running 20-minute miles for four years. <laughs> and I was really the only one out of all of my friends that did it. And it wasn't for lack of, of trying on my friends' parts. I just think that my body took to the work that I was doing the most. When you're that young and your body is that needy for being young and agile and virile, the weight melts off you. It takes work, but it melts off you very, 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 very fast. I, no one ever put it to me that way. But I just one day went down to the office where Sal was and he said, come with me. And I went with him and we walked into the weight room, which was in the basement of my high school. And the cheerleaders were working out, like 30 of them. And I was like, what are we doing? He's like, we're working out. I'm like, yeah, but the cheerleaders are here. He's like, if, do you want motivation? I was like, yeah. He's like, look at them and work out in front of them. If you feel like you're fumbling around, if you feel like you're looking silly, doesn't matter. Just keep using that as motivation. And it seemed silly at the time, but in retrospect, it seems really genius. And then he had this other thing that he had me do, which was jogging on Main Street in my hometown with no shirt on and short shorts. 
He was like, you have to wear short shorts and no shirt. And I was like, why? He's like, because if you're jogging down Main Street with no shirt on and short shorts, you look fine. But if you're walking down Main Street with short shorts on and no shirt on, it, 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 it looks like you're probably messed up on something. I don't really know what, exactly what he said, but the impetus behind that was also genius because it also worked. The reality is... I didn't want to have to go to the beach that summer with my then girlfriend and have bigger boobs than her. <laughs> so I decided to really get in shape and I did. I really did. Okay. We're back at it. Sorry. I had to put my cat in my bedroom cause he's running around and I just didn't want it to mess with the sound. Anyway. Um, so yeah. D- d- did you participate in any cur- extracurriculars in high school? Uh-huh. I was in all the high school plays, obviously both musicals and non-musicals. I was in the choir. I was in something called jazz rock, which was kind of like the, you could, it's like the equivalent of like what an acapella group would have been back then. So yeah, I was in anything artistic and performative in high school for sure. And I did try out for football. I did get on like the football team freshman year, but all of the guys that were on the team that were friends that I used to get beat up from, like the second I showed up, really like lip, like laid into me for even trying. And my best friend Dave stuck up for me. Dave Cacaperto, my close childhood friend, is the gateway drug to all of my success. Because anything I ever wanted to do, he told me I could. But I realized that football wasn't my thing when... I, I just didn't feel like I loved it. And it had very little to do with the fact that there was ridicule involved and everything to do with the fact that I wasn't athletic yet. I, w- I did not develop a sense of athleticism and that I really didn't develop that until college. I might have lost a lot of weight my senior year of high school, but I didn't find a love for athletics until I was much older. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, all of my extracurricular activities revolved around performing. And outside of school, skateboarding was my number one thing. Skateboarding and, and skating with my best friend Dave was the gateway drug to everything in the sense that I showed up to school my freshman year with a skateboard and these older kids came up to me and said, yo, you skate? And I said, yeah. And they said, meet us at Meat Farms at 3.30. And Meat Farms was this abandoned grocery store. We were like, okay. And I grabbed Dave and I'm like, yo, these seniors like want to meet us and hang out and skate today. So we waited in this parking lot for an hour and eventually the side door to this abandoned building opened up and this senior's hand is just waving us in and they had broken into this building, turned the electricity on, ripped the plywood off the walls, built half pipes with them, were blasting music in there. It looked like something out of... A movie. It was a movie. That sounds dope. Oh, it was great. <laughs> and it blew our minds. You know, like there are these older kids that are breaking the law, breaking into places, and skateboarding. And skateboarding isn't intrinsically connected to crime, but what I'm saying is it's very counterculture. It's very risky. It's very punk rock. Yeah. Sure. And those guys, those older dudes, were the reasons that we got into raving, the reasons we got into punk rock music, the reasons we each told our parents that we were sleeping at each other's houses and took the train into New York City and did extremely risky things until the sun came up at 14, 15, 16 years old. 
So by the time that the older kids graduated and then we became seniors, I had already lived a life that most kids couldn't even imagine. I mean, I was liquid dancing, which is this crazy way of using your hands to basically mime that there are shapes of that you could shift in front of them. And I, I experimented with telepathy and with astral projection. I was like really into some out there stuff at a very young age. And it really still informs me. And a lot of it, like I said, boils back down to the fact that this kid named Dave grew up across the street from me or moved to my hometown and allowed me to be or find my bravery. You know, he was the person that introduced me to performing and knew that I had a future as a performer. And he did too at that point in time, but his path went a lot differently than mine. But like I went to a performing arts summer camp for two summers, 12 and 13 years old that he told me to go to. And that's where I literally met the mother of my child. She was from New York City, and I made all these friends that I had never had before. It was the first time that I was thrown into a social mix of new people. I reinvented myself, which brings this conversation kind of full circle. Like, you know, you can reinvent yourself or you could bring things back. And I found out that I could, like, just always kind of change and try out who this new version of me is to see if that identity works. And sometimes it did and sometimes it didn't. And ultimately that informs who you ultimately become. But back then I was just trying these things out. And without Dave, I wouldn't have gone to this camp. I wouldn't have found my passion. I wouldn't have met the mother of my child. And then 20 years later, refound each other on Facebook and conceived a child out of love that is very much making my house a mess right now because his mom's out of town for 10 days and we are in each other's faces and he just started second grade and as he's in school as he's learning as he's showing up all day all these things that i'm talking to you about i feel the need to like express to him i feel the need to be like just be yourself you're gonna be okay and i remember showing up the first day i'm like are you nervous buddy like are you okay he's like yeah i'm fine dad like me first day of school Ugh, I shook. I was terrified. I didn't know who was going to be in my class. I didn't know if I was going to get made fun of. I didn't know if the outfit I was wearing was right. I didn't. But then I stopped caring after a while because I became my own best friend. And I found Dave. And, and um, the rest is history. And that's a testament to friendship, you know. I read a quote yesterday or today on Instagram that was like, God sends people into your life what was the quote? It was, it was like, when God wants to bless you, he'll send new amazing people into your life. And it's so true. And friendship has everything to do with that. I got two male best friends and two female best friends, and we talked to each other all day, every day via text and whatnot. And without that network, without that web of power in my life, I am powerless. And I think that's also how Kanye West can make an album with 27 songs on it. He's got a lot of friends that believe in collaborating with him. That album's okay, by the way. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you said it. That's, that's kind of the general consensus, it seems. Yeah, it's fluff. You know, I mean... The production's really minimal in a lot of parts. Which is kind of... Okay, look, it is very minimal. 
But the, if you listen to a Strokes album, the production sounds minimal too, but somehow it's genius. And Kanye, you and I, I think, either talked about it on the last podcast, but my Dark Twisted, uh, what's the proper Beautiful title? Dark Twisted. Yeah, things. that's the best album of the last 10 plus years, no question. Yeah. But like, Radiohead used to make brilliant pop rock albums. Brilliant stuff. And then after kind of Kid A and OK Computer, they just started making, they started painting with broad, broader strokes because they had already made their Mona Lisas. I, and I think Kanye West isn't intending on doing that. I think he's just doing that now. And his rhyming isn't even that great anymore. And you know what? It's, it all boils down to one thing, hunger, right? His hunger is to change the world or manipulate it or to inspire what he sees in his head to arrive in other people's heads. But it's jumbled. And I have ADHD. I made an album last year. If I didn't have like my one friend to check me, be like, nah, as quality control, I feel like there was no quality control on this album. There's quality shit on the album. There's way too many songs. And a lot of them are not that great, unfortunately. He's very much an artist, right? But he's just painting with broad strokes and the canvas is way too big. Yeah, talking about that hunger, you know, like early on, he was so focused on trying to establish himself as a rapper because everybody just wanted to pigeonhole him as a producer. producer. And so I guess that kind of made him want to prove himself and that made some of his best albums. And so now that he's established, you know, like you said. Yeah, and also he has got a lot of passions. I mean, he makes sneakers, he makes clothes. He is buying land and creating self-sustained houses in the middle of Wyoming. Like, these are all cool things. I think he wants to make cars. He's got a lot of, like, really influential and artistic friends. And he's got his hands in a lot of pockets. And he's obviously a very wealthy man at this point. He's also going through a divorce. And he has four kids. I have one kid. And I went through a separation with his mother. And that is intense. He's got four kids. A fortune that he's sharing and a bunch of dreams that have already been actualized. And I think that he still feels the need to prove that he has hunger, but he's not that hungry anymore. You know, every rapper will tell you, every rapper will tell you, I made the best stuff when I was hungry. I know some rappers who actually literally, who literally starve themselves when it comes time to making an album so they can feel hunger. Literally, I think he's too rich to be hungry, you know? Yeah, his ego's gotten to him a little bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he wants to change his name to Yay, which, okay, I get it, because he says that means the word you in the Bible. Like, it's like, I'm not me, I'm, I'm you. And that just seems like that's, not, that's disingenuous in the sense that everything he's doing is about him. If it was really about us, he would have made better music. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Sorry, yay. Uh, I, I, we all loved you, and I am a white man. Like I am, I, I, you will, and you can probably watch this and say he's a white guy. He doesn't understand hip hop. But on that note, I wrote a couple of things about hip hop music because I had a dream that someone was like, "You don't know anything about hip hop music," and I was like, I had to start like saying things to this person to prove to them that I am well versed in it and I have my own individual perspective. So these are just some things, some broad strokes I wrote about what I know about hip hop. 
I know that Biggie was from Bedford Stuyvesant, and that his mom's name was uh, Valletta Wallace. I know that Dr. Dre had a perm, and people thought he was whack when he was in this group called the World Class Wrecking Crew. And he wasn't whack. He was a G that blazed herb, flipped the world on the we- uh, onto the West Coast with a middle finger and a bunch of his dogs. I know that Rick Rubin birthed five generations of culture in an NYU dorm room. I know that hip-hop was born in Jamaica, the island, not the borough. Look it up. I know that the Jurassic Five, the group, is way better than the Black Eyed Peas. And the Black Eyed Peas were an actual hip-hop act before Fergie. No disrespect to Fergie. Her first album is fire. I know that Lil Wayne... I know that when Wayne said, drop it like it's hot for the first time, it lit a fuse that traveled all around the globe until it landed in Toronto, and the rest is history. I know that Drake is a rapper, but moreover, he is a curator, and that he's very smart. There's a rapper by the name of Belly, and there's a rapper by the name of Russ. And I think they don't like each other, but they should, because they could learn a lot from each other, and if they toured together, it would be magic. I know that Nas is the definition of prolific and proficient. And I know that rappers aren't telling stories anymore, and he is still, and does, and he's anointed. There's a rapper also from Queens by the name of AZ, and he should have had more of a moment. I know that with I know there would be no Jim Jones if there wasn't a rapper by the name of Big L. And I know that Harlem needs its flowers. We need to respect Harlem and what it has given to hip-hop culture to this day. I know that Florida taught you how to shake your ass. I know that French Montana used to sell DVDs in the West Village. I know that Puff Daddy or Puffy or Diddy knows what he did for the culture. A lot of it was comedy, even if he disagrees with that. And it's not a bad thing. He made hip-hop Hollywood, and I'm not mad at it. I know that I'm white, but I've been obsessed with this culture for as long as I can remember. I know that Bimmy is a Don, and if you know who Bimmy is, you're, you, you, you know some shit. I know that... There are two things that make Staten Island extraordinary, the RZA and the Sopranos and Pete Davidson. I know that Eminem's first album is called Infinite, and if you've never heard the title track, then you're not a fan. I know that I saw 8 Mile 15 times in the theater. I know that Lloyd Banks needs his flowers and that 50 Cent Story and Rise to the Limelight was one of the most fun things to be around as a young man. It was a magical moment, and I also know that we made that we made many babies to his second album. If you were in a club when Disco Inferno came on or Candy Shop, you felt like a god for some reason. Reason. I know that LL Cool J is the reason you all do it. I know that Grandmaster Flash took the disparity in the Bronx and made the streets party despite it, and that party still hasn't stopped, and we need to say his name more. I know, just like you know, that New York City will always be home plate, but we have to respect the outfield and the other bases. And I know I don't know everything, but I know enough to talk about it. That's all I got to say about hip hop. <laughs> nice, nice. I, I I woke up and I was like, I need to write these things down. And there's, I could go on and on and on and on and on and on. And I've had late night conversations with hip hop heads who are friends of friends of mine. And th- those friends will hit me up the next day and be like, Yo, you really surprised Jacob? Are you like, wh- what did you say to him? I was like, I was just talking about hip hop music. It's it it. it 
when I started skateboarding, I was a, I became a part of the street. My parents got divorced when I was 14. The five years leading up to that were torture. The only thing I ever knew was street culture. Anything I and and you know they tried to say keep kids off the street, keep keep kids out of the street because of drugs and violence and so forth. And if you're smart enough and your conscience is in place, you won't get involved with that stuff. And I didn't. But I did get involved with street culture, with graffiti, with hip-hop music, with dancing, with just urban culture. And it is intrinsic to almost all of the art that I make, the street comedy that I do, the hip-hop music that I make, the stuff that I do when I walk around with my son and talk to him. I was walking down the street. There's a sandwich shop up the block called... um, fat sales and on the side of it is a big picture of biggie and i have a video on my instagram of me explaining who biggie is to my seven-year-old son and he knows who biggie is like these kids need to know who these people are because these people have created the biggest part of pop culture and it's not going anywhere and it was supposed to everyone thought it was a flash like like i said when rick rubin created this thing in his nyu dorm room it was still quiet it was still like no one knew what it was going to become. Maybe he did. I'm sure on some level he did. Speaking of Nas though, man, that King's disease too, just proves that he still got it. Oh (laughs) yeah. And he dropped an album like last year too. I mean, and that one's revered. uh, He he, he won the Grammy. Yeah. I believe. Yeah. Mm. He's got a song. He's got many songs, but he's got a song. I forget on which album it's called. Um, Oh man, what's the name of the song? I can't remember it off the top of my head. Never mind. But he's just a great storyteller. So was Biggie. You know, so was Sticky Fingers. I mean, storytelling, if you listen to my album, classical music on all streaming platforms, just by my last name, McManus, every single song is a story. Every single one is a beginning. There are three verses or two verses, but more, more than likely there are three verses. And each, the first verse is the beginning of the story. The second verse is the middle of the story. And then it concludes in the third verse. And that's what these rappers taught me to do. Hip-hop music was made to, to party to, to dance to. And an MC stands for master of ceremonies, the person who stands up and keeps the party going. And rhyming was always a part of it. It's obviously changed, but it there was like a proficiency to storytelling. Imagine being able to tell an intricate story with with rhyming. Obviously, Shakespeare did it. There's been many people that have been rapping in verse in for years or rhyming in verse for years. But now it's a little different. I'm not angry at it. I'm not angry at it at all. But it's just not as it's just not as cinematic to me anymore. But Nas is still very much cinematic, where a sentence can take you down a thought process that can change the way your day goes. You know. Mm. Um. Oh, I also want to touch base on this. I want to talk about relationships for a second here. So when we got together two weeks ago, I was going through a breakup, right? I like the first or second sentence out of my mouth was that I got dumped and I'm actually working things out with my girlfriend, right? We've decided to work things out. She and I have been talking and, and in my life, I've had a lot of relationships. I have seen my fair share of failed relationships all stemming from my grandparents to my parents, to my siblings, to my own 
to my friends. I'm, a, I'm very aware of the fact that a majority of relationships just don't work out. And so I think in my head, there was a seed planted as a youth that taught me that relationships uh, just don't work out more often than not. And so that if one starts to not work out, that you should just move on to the next thing. There's a line from a rap song that goes, I moved from my ex bitch to the next bitch. And I was like, when I was like 20 years old, I'm like, yo, that's my phrase, Joe. That's my phrase, dog. Oh, gangstar? Yeah. Yeah. And, wow, you know some shit, Sean. <laughs> that's one of my top, yeah. Oh, gangstar. I, I work out to gangstar. If you want to get a good workout in, you plush play on gangstar. <laughs> Facts. Uh, but I think I have decided at 40 years old to not run anymore. And even in the face of adversity or even in the face of uncertainty, relationships should be built on chapters. And I think in embracing this thing, I have decided to grow up a little bit and I'll let you guys know how it goes. You know, it may not work out. It may work out, but I'm kind of proud of myself. I pat myself on the back, like me and this beautiful girl that I've been in a relationship with for two years where things ended for about two or three weeks, really put into perspective how much we meant to one another. And this is something funny that I, 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 I was, I talk to myself a lot in front of my son and sometimes I don't think he's listening, but I'm driving him to school yesterday and I'm thinking about my relationship and I'm thinking about myself and I say out loud, yeah, I still got some jealousy issues to work through. And my son in the back of the car, who doesn't interject at all when I talk to myself, he's like, why do you have jealousy issues, dad? And I was like, man, I could either like tell the truth right now or, or, I, or, I, can't, or I could just like w figure out a way to go around it. And I was like, I'm going to tell the truth. I was like, well, well, my parents had jealousy issues for a couple of reasons. And the first person I ever fell in love with kind of broke my heart. And I think on some level, that's always stuck with me. No matter how old I get or how much I experience, those seeds, those thoughts have never been properly addressed. And I said that to my seven-year-old son. And you know how good I felt about myself and about us and about life? I was like, okay, this is how you parent. You know, this is how, this is like, this is how you, like, I was saying to myself, I have jealousy issues and my son overheard me and he asked me about it. You know what? You know how you stop this train, the train that my grandparents started that moved into my parents' relationship, that moved into my relationships and my, my siblings' relationships? You talk about it with your seven-year-old son. I was like, shit. <laughs> and that's parenting in 2021. It's talking to yourself out loud. <laughs> Just being more open with your kids, you know, not thinking that they can't handle something or that, they, you know, it's, it's yeah, something that they wouldn't understand. So they're, yeah. a lot, they're a lot smarter than we give them credit for. My son saw a trans woman walking down the street. I live uh, close to Santa Monica Boulevard and there's, a, a, it's in West Hollywood. Or, and so there, it's a, there's a lot of LBGY, LBG, LBD. I mispronounced that because I'm dyslexic, not because I don't know. But in my brain, the letters always jumble, not because I'm disrespecting the culture, just because my brain sometimes with acronyms messes things up. But it's LGBTQ. And I think, yeah, I should add a plus to that. But there's in West Hollywood, there's a lot of that culture. 
thank God. And my son was like, is that a man or a woman? And I said, well, I would venture to say that that is a woman, but it's a trans woman. And what that means is there is a, there was a, a child that was born at some point that was born and looked like a boy, felt and, and but didn't feel like a boy, felt very much like they were a girl. They identified with being female. And so they made a choice at some point to adjust their appearance. So their appearance met their feelings from the inside out. And the, the outside in matches and the inside out matches. And the same went for speaking about just being gay. Uh, I think his mom's coworker was, was gay or is gay. And the concept came up and I simply just said, it just means that a boy and another boy or a man and another man could love each other or a girl or, and a, or a woman could love each other. And it was completely normal, completely acceptable. I didn't want to go into any of the derogatory history behind it of, that he will find out that I, I will explain to him. But at first glance, I want to explain it to him like it's normal, like it's just it's, it doesn't have to be a huge conversation. It could. Now, I'm not saying this is completely the right thing to do. I'm just saying I think I'd much rather just explain it to him in a very approachable and easy way without giving it a bunch of layers that he may not be able to understand just yet. But I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm doing an okay job I'm, at being a dad. Cause my dad's a good guy. He wasn't the greatest in terms of explaining either his feelings or the world to me as a child. But, he, but I'm learning from those mistakes. So, yeah, I'm working on my relationship. I'm explaining my emotions to my son. And I'm driving around Los Angeles with a bunch of dreams in my heart still. And, I, and with all of these things, like my, my ex, his mother has been out of town for about 10 days now, and she gets back in two days. So my son and I have been in one another's faces. And it's, we've, we've run the whole gamut. Like there were a couple of days where we almost weren't getting along that well. We were just kind of butting heads. Excuse me. And then yesterday we drove to Highland Park and went playing in this playground that he loves to play in. And then we got French fries somewhere and some school supplies and we just had a nice talk and that's another thing like every kind of relationship goes around a circle there is a spectrum of experience within a relationship of any kind and you have to take the good with the bad and as simple as that all sounds it really is something you have to remember and you have to be and i've talked about this a lot mindful of how you're thinking and feeling at any particular moment because like i've said before you have two kinds of thoughts you have useful thoughts and unuseful thoughts and i am aware of that and sometimes i do let my unuseful thoughts get the best of me that's how i was raised i'm an irish man from the east coast and there is a woe is me kind of stamp attached to men like that for some reason like just the kind of guy who's sitting around at a bar complaining about all the things that went wrong in their life and one of the reasons i left the east coast is because i didn't want to be around that anymore and i'm not very much like that but every once in a while you'll find me somewhere woe is me and that's okay too you have to be okay with everything that comes your well, You have to be okay with understanding that you're going to have to go over a couple of humps here and there and that life is sweeter when it's bitter sometimes. 
I mean, that's you, just you need the lows to appreciate the highs. Sure, <laughs> man. I was talking about my career <sighs> with my girlfriend, and she was talking about some friends of hers that she's a little younger than I am, and so they're experiencing some of the lessons that I learned in Hollywood now, and they get a no and they feel like the world is ending and I go outside and there's no's everywhere, but I've somehow been able to prevail and take it all with a grain of salt at this point. But there were moments, man, where I just lost like a dream job or I had like a job coming my way that was going to be so lucrative and change my life. And it was so close that I just assumed that it was mine. You can't assume anything. And even when you don't get it, you can't hate yourself. And it's so easy to be like, well, I didn't get this thing. And that's because I'm a failure. And they could go all the way back to that time you tried to join the football team and no one wanted you on that. Or that time you, like I remember this one time I wanted to play softball so bad with this team. I was like a little league team. And the coach drove to my house to tell my mom that I, I didn't make the team or that he didn't want me on his team. And my mom had to like break my heart. And I think like, even like when my girlfriend and I were breaking up initially, I, I heard those no's. Like the echoes of those no's are still inside me and I still have to deal with them. And they're all interconnected, but I think you can stop that thought process if you just try and stay as present as possible. And if you grow, and you also should grow with the people around you that you love. And that's a hard thing. I think people imagine that the person they're with or the person they are with the person they're with stays or is supposed to stay at this status. But I heard a great quote yesterday from this woman who said, there are two kinds of, you, you either fall in love or you have four different soulmates or you have the same soulmate. They just change who they are, who they are four or five times. Right. And I think that's a beautiful way of looking at relationships. You should expect that if they truly are one of your soulmates or meant to be in your life, that you should expect them to change. And you should be able to adjust to that and vice versa. And I'm really at 40 years old learning that now because I used to think that if they're changing or if they're taking if they're if they're doing things differently, if they're hanging out with new groups of people, if they're taking painting classes, like this is silly stuff that they don't love me anymore. And that's not true. They th th that just means they love themselves to try new things and I should just be really cool with that. And that's that's how I think maybe used, on some level relationships can succeed and it's taken me a long time, a really long time to understand that. To really understand that. Because I used to remember my mom wanting to do certain things. And my dad being like, why the fuck would you want to do that? Just shutting her down. And there's a line in the notebook. Because I got to bring up the notebook. Where she's like, I don't paint anymore. And her husband at the time was like, um, okay. And she, like, she didn't paint anymore. She didn't, because she was being hindered by this partner of hers or by her ex existence plus this partner, she didn't do the thing that made her feel very much like herself. And I think we should continue to paint. I think Kanye West has too much paint. I think Jim Carrey has just the right amount of paint. And if you haven't seen any of his paintings, please look at his paintings because he's a, he's a real genius. Could I tell you a story about Jim Carrey? Yeah, of course. Okay. Personal story? True story. 
So when my son's mother and I were living together years ago when he was a baby, he had gone to sleep and I just, I think that, um, okay, so when, uh, so years ago, I w- my son had just gotten to bed. He was an infant and it was a long day and I needed a breath of fresh air. So I just went for a walk in West Hollywood. And I, the sun was setting and I walked past this restaurant called Republic, which is on La Brea, South La Brea. And it's like a really nice restaurant. And there's this dude smoking a cigarette outside that I knew. And he was like, Matt. I was like, yo, what up? And he was the bar manager of this place. Uh, and, and he's like, yo, we're having like this private event right now. There's an art gallery next door. And there's like a million celebrities inside. And I was like, I'm dressed like I had sweatpants on. I think, I, I mean, I was just on a walk, you know. I was just getting a breath of fresh air. He's like, you should come inside. And I'm like, dude, I mean, look at how I'm dressed. He's like, Jim Carrey's inside. I'm like, all right, I'm coming. <laughs> because... When Jim Carrey was shooting, <coughs> excuse me, when Jim Carrey was shooting Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind in my, where I grew up on Long Island, I tried chasing him. I tried going to set. When he was shooting the Penguin movie in New York City, I tried meeting him there. Like I, There were multiple occasions where I literally didn't go to class in college or in high school because I tried to meet Jim Carrey. So this was important to me. So I'm sitting at the bar and I had two drinks. They were strong drinks. And uh, Emily Rizinjowski, I can't pronounce her last name. She's like this beautiful actress. She's in a uh, bunch of stuff. She was at the bar seat next to me. I had a brief conversation with her. Don't quote me on that. I'm pretty sure it was her. I'm like 99% sure it was her, but we weren't flirting or anything. We just had a conversation. But I had a couple of drinks. And I was like, well, where is it? Like there were celebrities everywhere. And I was like, where's Jim Carrey? And my buddy, who was the bartender at this point, was like, I think he's in one of like the cavernous back rooms. I was like, do I do this? He's like, dude, you're here. Do it, right? So I walk around this huge restaurant, and there's like, like I said, there's cavernous back room. There's a banquet table that's that's long, and Jim Carrey's sitting at the corner of it. And there's an empty seat next to him, and there's beautiful women surrounding the rest of the table. And I had just finished shooting a television show with the with Marlon Wayans, who is part of the Wayans family, who gave Jim Carrey one of his first, well, probably his, his big break on In Living Color, which is a sketch comedy television show. I believe it was on Fox when I was a kid, when I, when I was my son's age. And Jim Carrey was on the show. He was like one of the only white people on the show and obviously hilarious. Fire Marshal Bill, you know, all kinds of different characters. Anyway, so there's, there was, that, there was that, that kind of correlation between where I was in my professional life in regards to where he started. So I sat down next to him, and he looked at me. He was like, hey. And I was like, hey, my name's Matt. I'm not going to take up too much of your time. I, he was doing Saturday Night Live that weekend or, or the following weekend because he was promoting Dumb and Dumber 2 or the sequel to Dumb and Dumber. And I just say, I said, look, I wanted to wish you luck on Saturday Night Live. I want to wish your movie Good luck, but I've been looking for you for a long time, man. When you were shooting Eternal Sunshine for the Spotless Mine on Long Island, I took the Long Island Railroad to everywhere you were filming, and I just missed you by like an hour or two, or the set or by an hour or two when you were filming Mr. Popper's Penguins in New York City, in Central Park. I went looking for you at the ice skating rink because I heard you were there, and I had missed you. And when you were shooting Man on the Moon in Los Angeles. I was in Los Angeles. I went looking for you. Couldn't find you. But all of those movies helped make me who I am. 
and I am a comedian, and I just finished shooting a television show with Marlon Wayans, and it's on TBS, and you mean a lot to me, and I've been looking for you for a long time. And he said, he just stood up, put his hands out like this, and he was like, well, here I am. And when, I mean, think about that. I mean, like, it's Jim Carrey. I, I, I said, I've been looking for you for a long time. And he stands up, spreads his hands, and he's like, well, here I am. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? Like, I did, you know? Wow. And all of the women at the table, either this is me imagining it, but I could just sense that all these beautiful women that were standing around him were like, who is this guy <laughs> he didn't. He wasn't picking up on that energy. I think that was all I needed to do. There's a lot of people take this man's time, right? A lot of people. And so I didn't want to take up too much more of it, but I shook his hands and he said, thank you. And that was it. Wow. And, and I, I walked home that night crying because I was like, you know, we got into this magic. We, we signed up for this magic. We wanted to be a part of this magic. And we, we thought that we think that it needs to materialize in ways that other people need them to materialize, meaning you're a star or, or meaning that you're on nine different TV shows or that you have a hit movie. And those things are probably great. And I'm going to get those too. But honestly, like I wanted to be a part of the magic and that's, that's the magic for me, man. That's the magic. And I live in a magic, we live in a magic town and I'm still very much inspired by it. And I'm happy to drive around here and talk to my son about my jealousy issues as I drive him to a school in the center of Hollywood where you can see the Hollywood sign, the same sign I drove by when I first moved here with no idea how this whole thing was going to turn out. And I still don't. And you know what? The ambiguity attached to who I am and what I'm doing allows me to exist in the ether of this magic. And at some point, as it solidifies, that am ambiguity will go away because I'm going, to, I, I, am, I, I am a magician, you know, I'm a wizard in this magic. I've just kind of been hiding my wand for a while. But it's out, you know? And uh, I just want to say thank you to Jim Carrey for being kind enough to allow me to talk to him. I want to say thank you to the gentleman who constructed the Hollywood land sign. I want to say thank you to the concept of friends. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's crazy just being out here, what can happen by sheer proximity. I mean, you just went for a walk, didn't expect anything, and you met your one of your heroes. <laughs> I have, Yeah, I did. I really did. I, and then, so... Tony Clifton is Andy Kaufman's alter ego, and Tony Clifton and Andy Kaufman are Bob Zamuda, who's also Tony Clifton. It's a longer story. We can go into that in another episode, but I went to go see Tony Clifton perform live at the Comedy Store years ago. I have a picture with him, and I, cr I cried on his shoulder, too. I told him that he was the, you know, Tony, I, t I told him he was everything to me, and he is. I... I, I <laughs> that's all I really need. You know what I mean? Like my friend saw the movie swingers. My best friend saw the movie swingers when we were like in college and he's like, I don't need to do anything anymore. I'm quitting the business. I'm someone made that movie. That's what I would have made. I don't need to do this anymore. That's done. Right. <laughs> I still have a lot more to do, but after like those, those magic moments for me, fuck man, it's not meeting a celebrity. It's just being close that close to the, 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 the magic, the inspiration that brought me all the way here. 
there used to be this promo for HBO before HBO was what it is now. It really was just a place to see movies that came out in the theater on television eventually. They didn't have original content, but they had this promo where like you would see from the vantage point of the Hollywood Hills, like the sun setting and the valley, you know, of of Los Angeles at night and everything lit up. And I dreamt of that, of standing in those hills at night my whole childhood. I dreamt, I literally would like just be in dreams standing up there. And, you know, if I have a balcony right there. If you stand on that balcony and look up, you see those hills. I made that happen. I made that happen. It's possible, kids. I'm a weird guy with a heart of gold and a bunch of thoughts that he's figuring out as I go along. And I was able to materialize looking at the hills I dreamt about in the apartment that I live in with my child. And I'm a kid that had special needs. I'm a kid that was told no my whole life. And I'm great with who I am and where I'm at and all the choices I'm making. And it doesn't always feel that way, feel like that. And that's life. So come back again. Let's do it. Yeah, buddy. Excited. <laughs> okay. All right. See you next time. See you next time, everybody. Once again, you're listening to McMahon the podcast with Matt McManus. This is episode two. Come on back, y'all. Bye. <laughs>